New REI nurses, take your career to the next level with NROCS, the Nurses in REI Communication, Knowledge and Skills online certificate program from ASRM. NROCS gives you practical applications you can use immediately and the opportunity to interact with other REI nurses and content experts. Increase your understanding of REI, make new professional connections, and gain confidence in your nursing role. To learn more about NROCS, visit asrm.org slash nrcks. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we're talking about surrogacy. To guide us in this conversation is Dr. Brian Levine. Dr. Levine is the founding partner and practice director of CCRM New York. He has many years of experience in IVF treatment, IUI treatment, PCOS treatment, gestational surrogacy, LGBTQ reproduction, and many other areas. He's board certified in both reproductive endocrinology and infertility and obstetrics and gynecology. He leads the industry in normalizing open dialogue about infertility, a medical condition affecting one in eight couples, and educates prospective parents on a national level. Also, if that wasn't enough, he's also the founder of Nodal, which we are going to discuss further shortly, and serves as CEO in addition to his ongoing clinical practice. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for coming on ASRM today. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. I am beyond excited to be here. Fantastic, as, as, as I do with all of my first-time guests. How did you become interested in reproductive medicine? So, you know, I think what people recognize is that the field of reproductive medicine is a small one, right? There's only about 45 to 50 of us that come out of training a year. And all of us typically have a unique story of how we ended up in this really small field. For me, I went to college being a pre-med biology major. And then halfway through, I lost a parent to cancer and decided I didn't want to be a doctor. I ended up after graduating from college, started a PhD in molecular biology and genetics, and it was awful. I spent a year doing it. And I was like, this is just not the right thing for me. And so in 2003, I applied to medical school at that time and ended up going to NYU. Going into medical school, I totally thought I was going to be an ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctor, because I always liked technology. And it was really on the cutting edge of technology of helping people hear. And I wanted to be on the happy side of medicine. Well, on the second day of med school, I heard a lecture about the genetic testing of embryos that completely transformed my life and actually is what led to my career today. That lecture to me was like Star Wars. It was like modern science and clinical practice, and it just blew me away. And ultimately, I decided that I wanted to be a reproductive endocrinologist. So I went to NYU for med school, Columbia for residency, and then I went to New York Hospital Cornell for fellowship. Do you remember the title of, of the talk or the person that was Oh my gosh, it? I do. So yeah. it was the second day of med school. It was Jamie Grippo, who's the practice director and founder over at NYU, who I know has been on your podcast as well. And it was about the ethics of reproduction. And the topic of the discussion was they had just had a couple who had had a first child affected by a devastating condition called cystic fibrosis. And they wanted to have another child in their family, but they didn't want to see their second child suffer from the same really debilitating disease that this first one had. And so the question was, what do you do with embryos that you create that are affected? And it was part of our like, welcome to med school. These are the ethical decisions that doctors make. I remember everything about it. I remember where I was sitting. I remember literally my jaw probably being open. I could have caught flies. I mean, I literally sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. 
because it was at that moment that I realized that in the world of reproductive endocrine and infertility treatment, you're doing some of the smallest surgery on earth, right? Injecting the world's smallest or the smallest cell in the human body, which is a sperm and injecting that into a single cell, an egg. And then you're growing an embryo in a laboratory environment. And then you're taking a biopsy or a sampling, which is probably the second smallest surgery after ICSI to sample that embryo. And so to me, I just sat there with the tech and then the ethics and the medicine and the fact that I didn't have to be on the sad side of healthcare. And I was like, this is right for me. You, you were mentioning you had a tragedy in your life that sort of set your thinking too on a different path. I can imagine. I want to ask you then is, is how does such an experience then shape you as a physician in, in the way that you approach care for people that again, not in always in tragic circumstance, but just sure. in general. Yeah. So my father died from pancreatic cancer at 58 years old. It was a devastating diagnosis and his clinical course was short because the disease in my opinion, thankfully was caught in a very late stage. So there was not a lot of suffering that was associated with it. With that said, if you were to ask me, what is my favorite title or description? It's none of the ones that you use to intro me on this podcast. My favorite title is dad. And I have two little kids at home. And to me, I'm incredibly proud of being a parent, of being a father, of being a partner. And that's what actually drives me forward every day as a clinician. The greatest joy that I have is seeing my family grow and is helping other people have their own families and either start or grow their families. And so out of the loss that I had in my life, it's completely galvanized my desire to help people have the simple pleasures, you know, someone to look up to and look down to and mentor along the way. So I'll, I'll segue then into surrogacy because yeah. this is a for, for many in reproductive medicine, this is a difficult subject. This is a difficult topic, and a lot of people don't know how to approach it. You have started a website and a, and a whole movement here with Nodal. The website says, surrogacy the way it should be. And I was wondering if you could unpack that statement just a little bit for our listeners. Absolutely. So to understand what Nodal is, is to understand where it came from. And so as a clinician practicing medicine in the state of New York, in 2021, we had the unbelievable opportunity to finally offer surrogacy to our patients. Now, as part of the CCRM network or the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine Network, we have 11 clinics around the country today. So surrogacy has always been one phone call away for us, where we've been actually able, if that we had a patient who cycled in New York, to send the embryos to one of our partner clinics. So we've always had an option to help our, our patients who are on that surrogacy pathway. However, when surrogacy was legalized in the state of New York in 2021, we saw an influx of interest. What we saw is that patients now wanted to come here because we could actually do the transfers here. Right before that, we couldn't do the transfers because there were no legal protections for either the intended parents, the people seeking to use a surrogate, or the gestational carrier, which is colloquially called a surrogate. So as the influx of interest continued from February until July, I recognized very quickly that the system was broken. In fact, I noticed in a very visceral sense, I was hating these conversations because what I was hearing from patients was that supply and demand economics were controlling the entire process. In an industry of surrogacy, which is very small in the United States today, Right, according to the CDC data from 2019, which is the most recent data that we have, approximately five to 6,000 successful journeys occurred. 
Well, how do we know that? Because they say there's five to 6,000 successful births through surrogacy. What we don't know is how many attempts were made, how many people didn't get pregnant or how many people you know, had a transfer, no outcome or had a repeat transfer. So we'd assume that maybe at a 50% success rate, because these are you know proven people who've had children in the past, maybe there were 10,000 total attempts in, in 2019, but we still don't even know that number, right? Because unfortunately, neither the CDC nor SART are able to actually report that clearly. But what I realized was that as the interest continued to build, patients were telling us ridiculous things. They were telling us that the costs were exceeding $100,000, exceeding $150,000 or $200,000. Or sometimes they were being asked to give a deposit on their first phone call to hold a spot online because there was a, a, a wait list that was building. Or people were told that the search criteria used by one agency were far superior than the search criteria of another, or the medical record review by one agency would be far superior to the other. And what I realized pretty quickly was that in this poorly regulated space, supply and demand economics were at play, but the supply was being deemed as the surrogates. The demand were the people who wanted to do this, the intended parents, and our patients were suffering. And as the costs were continuously going up, what we recognized was that the system was broken because the women who are doing the heavy lifting, the surrogates themselves, they were not seeing an increase in the compensation as a result of making this incredibly heroic and altruistic move. Instead, what we were saying is that the middleman or the broker was the one that was really getting the lion's share of the new fees that were associated with this highly desired yet hard to access area. So then it's safe to say then that this strange financial, uh, really uh, uh, quagmire as, as, as it would be, is, is sort of not helping the stigma uh, uh, attach, or it's attaching a stigma really to, to, uh, to surrogacy. Yeah. And so, you know, I always say it was the perfect storm for me because it was 2021. We were just coming out of what felt like the pandemic. Surrogacy had been permissible in the state of New York for six months. And what I've been hearing from patients was all these terrible stories, because it was seeming that it was going to be cost prohibitive, time prohibitive, and emotionally prohibitive, right? A lot of people even said, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with another no after dealing with the pandemic and potentially having to you know, lose their job or relocate or things like that. And what's fascinating to me as a clinician is that you know I took an oath to do no harm. And so what I started doing to patients, and I didn't even realize it until a patient called me out on it back in July of 21, was I said to a patient, we're about to have a terrible conversation. And she looked me square in the eye and she goes, what's so terrible? And I was like, we have to talk about surrogacy. And she goes, no, no, I, I, I get it. Like, you know, I've had a number of transfers and I can't stay pregnant and we don't know why I can't stay pregnant. And I've come to grips with this. And I was like, yeah, but now we have to hurry up and wait and you're going to have to hurry up and pay. And your employer actually doesn't even cover it. So this is going to be really expensive. And what I realized was that instead of having the excitement that we're going to try to figure out how to help this person on their path to parenthood, instead of trying to help this person get to their, their ultimate dream and goal of what I sometimes probably take for granted as a parent, I was basically saying to her that this is going to be potentially a couple broken promises and a long lead time. What do you then see is surrogacy sort of a, a not the wave of the future in reproductive medicine, but you see it as something that needs to be perhaps utilized more. It's sort of a, an area that has a lot more potential than people are giving it. 
Absolutely. So in a country of 300 million people, I don't understand how there's less than 10,000 attempts in a CDC database. If we're seeing access to IVF and reproductive health really on the, you know, the forefront of benefit payers' uh, discussions with their employers, right? As we know, and I've, I've heard on your podcast in the past, people talk a lot about the fact that employer-based benefits is actually one of the key determinants that people choosing to start or grow a family or not because the cost matters so much. But here we are with a system out there today that's really poorly understood. It is not readily discussed. It does not feel accessible. And if you happen to be a single father by choice or a gay male couple or a woman who's had cancer or a woman born without a uterus or a woman who can't be pregnant or stay pregnant, that entire grouping altogether may not have the opportunity to move forward. And everyone goes, oh, I'll just adopt. But that's a whole other industry to discuss. And it's not appropriate to mix the two together. And so instead, what we recognize is that the system of surrogacy in America today is underutilized, underdiscussed, and underappreciated for how important it is for helping our patients become parents and families grow. Do you think that many, and I'm just asking for an opinion here, of course, but sure. and you don't have to answer it if you don't want. Do you feel that there seems to be an almost subversive element attached to it, right? Like, like people might feel... I'll use the term weird, you know, in, in, in saying that, well, I'm going to go with, you know, someone else is going to carry my child, you know, someone else is going to actually do, as you said, this, this very altruistic work, you know, and, and I go back to using that word stigma also, because I think that a lot of times there's just so little known about, as you're pointing out, you know, about this process of surrogacy. And it, it just feels, I guess, you know, this isn't something that comes up over dinner conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, I mean, I, I guess the, I guess I'm trying to get at is like, how do we normalize it, right? How do you normalize something like surrogacy? So, you know, I think you bring up a wonderful point, which is that there is this stigma and almost feels like there's a curtain in front of the entire industry where some people don't want to look behind that curtain. And so it's almost easier to not know how it all works because there's all of these unspoken fears and concerns. What if she runs away with the baby? What if it's not mine? What if we find out that she drinks in the pregnancy? What if we find out that she runs off to a state and she has to have a termination because it's not normal and that she has the baby and now I'm responsible? Those questions are all really normal. And I will tell you now that if you go into Google and type the word surrogacy, what will come up is not the ASRM website as I wish it did. It is not reproductive facts as I wish it was. It is neither Resolve, nor SART, nor CDC. Instead, what you see is a lot of lead gen organizations that are helping people with their search engine optimization for commercial surrogacy agencies. Or you're finding news stories about the rich and famous who conceived through surrogacy and just popped up with a kid on the red carpet. But the mystique of surrogacy is one that I think is important as a reproductive endocrinologist to speak to our patients about this to help them understand that even though the matching and the agency aspect is unregulated, the care provided is by doctors. The care provided to these individuals is one by the clinic that you've trusted for so long, that there are very structured ways to evaluate someone, that there is an entire ecosystem, and there are recommendations from the American Society of Reproductive Medicine or ASRM practice committee on what are the best practices to do so. And when you realize that lawyers can write contracts and doctors can do evaluations and social workers can do home checks, you realize that it's actually very safe if done above boards. 
Well, again, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show on uh, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your uh, podcasting needs done. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.